whether you are starting a business or running a business, maybe you're producing a podcast like The Kara Golden Show. Let's face it, it's always way harder than one might expect. Lots of little details, meticulous planning, producing product, guest coordination, editing, promoting each episode. It's all a ton of work. Managing merchandise, managing cases and book sales too, layer after layer of complexity. And if you're like me, looking for ways to operate more efficiently and effectively is the name of the game. That's why I'm going to let you in on a little secret. ShipStation, the tool that is here to help you and you need to know all about it. With ShipStation, you can integrate with all the places you sell online, optimize your shipping, save costs and time. Personally, ShipStation has been a lifesaver for me. Its automation features allow me to manage orders from anywhere and print shipping labels with just a click. Seriously, it's that easy. And the cost savings? Unbelievable. With discounts up to 89% off carrier rates, you can't go wrong. Significant savings. And who doesn't want that? An easy-to-use dashboard, robust reporting. Oh, and did I mention that over 130,000 companies have leveraged ShipStation to grow their businesses? Not much churn either. 98% of them stay with ShipStation because it truly works. ShipStation is it. So if you're ready to streamline your shipping process and focus more on what you love, head over to ShipStation.com the innovative tool that helps turn your shipping challenges into opportunities for growth. Go to ShipStation.com and use code CARA to sign up for your free 60-day trial. That's ShipStation.com, code CARA. Use code CARA for a free 60-day trial. That's ShipStation.com, promo code CARA. You know, over and over again, what I saw was if you empowered a woman to earn a dollar, she would invest 80 to 90% back into her family and community. It was typically 30 to 40% for men. So if there's a silver bullet in ending poverty, it really is economically empowering women. You gotta pick yourself up, go backwards and slam yourself at the wall like 500 more times until the wall crumbles. 25% of middle school girls already believe they'll never achieve their dream career. career. Hi, I'm Kara Golden, founder and CEO of Hint. Hint. And you're listening to Unstoppable, a podcast spotlighting the journeys of inspiring entrepreneurs. I believe that at its core, leadership is about constantly learning from the people around you. And I'm so inspired by the conversations we're having in our upcoming episodes and can't wait to share them with you. This season, some of my guests include Rebecca Minkoff, fashion designer and founder of the Female Founder Collective, Diana Kapp, author of Girls Who Run the World, Andrew Dudham, founder of Hymns, and Eugene Rem, co-founder of Rumble Fitness, and much, much more. Plus, we ask the million-dollar question, what does it really take to be unstoppable? Let's find out. Hi, everybody. It's Kara Golden from Unstoppable with Kara, and I'm here today with Shiza. Hi, Shiza. How are you? 
Hi, Kara. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, you too. So she's a Shaheed. She's a friend and awesome, awesome entrepreneur. Just a little bit more about her. She's also somewhat recently the co-founder of a company called Our Place, which is an amazing, amazing company that in many ways, I can't believe anybody was like not doing this before. So we'll let her tell you a little bit more about this. She's also the founder of Now Ventures and the founding CEO of the Malala Fund. So very, very exciting. So just a little bit more about her. I mean, as I mentioned, she's an entrepreneur, an investor, a speaker, also a women's rights advocate who is out speaking still to this day about lots of amazing stuff that more and more women and men need to really know about. She's passionate about leveraging philanthropy, venture capital, technology to just really drive you know, scalable social impact. I mentioned that she co-founded the Malala Fund and led the organization as founding CEO. And she's, you know, just this amazing, the Times 30 Under 30 world changer, Forbes 30 Under 30, social entrepreneur, WEF, Global Agenda Council. Wow. I mean, this is this is amazing. Some things I did not even know about you. I mean, this is this is super, super great. Based in LA. Also, I know her husband, Amir, too, and co-founder, correct, for our place. And very, very thrilled to see these guys doing it. So again, welcome, Shiza. Very happy to have you here. I want to talk a bit about all the amazing things that you're doing and have done. But first, can you take us back to the beginning? Where do you think the drive for really social change came from? I read that at only 13 you were volunteering at the prisons in Pakistan? Is that like, wow. Yeah. Um, you know, thank you, Kara, for, for having me. I'm such a huge fan of yours and and see you as someone that I look up to and someone who uh, has built a really amazing business, a really amazing platform for inspiring others to follow their dreams. And, and personally, I know every time it ever reached out to you to ask for any advice or for an intro, you always respond immediately and are always so helpful. And uh, oh, that awesome. means a lot to me. So thank you for, for being you. And yes, uh, you know, you're right. I, I started early in wanting to make an impact. I was born into a modest family in Pakistan and I grew up there until I was 18 years old. And it was very clear to me that the opportunities that I had since my parents wanted me to have every opportunity in the world uh, were different from the opportunities that most women in Pakistan had. You know, Pakistan is ranked the second worst place to be born a woman in the world. The U.S. is not where it should be either. It's 51 out of 144 countries. So a lot of work to be done here as well. But in my home country, when I was growing up, it was very clear to me that women and girls were often denied the opportunities that every human deserves. And I wanted to understand why and, and how to make sense of it all. And so I ended up volunteering at a young age in nonprofits that would give me a chance, really. And that included nonprofits working in women's prisons, in microfinance and microenterprise, in girls' education. And, you know, over and over again, what I saw was if you empowered a woman to earn a dollar, 
she would invest 80 to 90% back into her family and community. It was typically 30 to 40% for men. So if there's a silver bullet in ending poverty, it really is economically empowering women. Wow, that's, that's amazing. So the prison system, how did you connect with that? So that was, you know, there was a nonprofit that would set up medical camps for women who were in prison. That particular prison didn't have a female doctor, so many of the women wouldn't come forward with the health challenges they were experiencing. So they would send over women health workers a couple of days a month to go in and see the women and provide consultations, provide basic medications and treatments. And I still remember, you know, this was one of my earliest experiences doing social work. How often have you thought about learning a new language only to be stopped by that memory of yours from the last time you tried to learn a language when it didn't go so well? Okay, maybe it wasn't a language that you were interested in learning, or perhaps all those poorly written textbooks in your sixth grade class weren't that well written after all. I have a great tip for you. It's called Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program around, available on desktop or app, no matter where you choose to learn it or what platform you choose to learn on, Rosetta Stone works and it truly immerses you in the language you choose to learn, quicker and easier than you ever imagined to. Maybe you're getting ready to travel abroad this summer and you want to learn a bit of Portuguese, let's say, before your trip, Rosetta Stone can help. I know this firsthand as I did just this before traveling to Portugal last year. I learned Portuguese through Rosetta Stone, and by doing so, I not only got a better grasp of the spoken language of Portugal, but it got me very excited for the trip itself before I went. They even have a true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation as you are learning, too. They've got you covered. Rosetta Stone's trusted experts are the real deal. They've been helping people just like you for over 30 years, helping millions of people to learn Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and my favorite, Portuguese. The lessons are five to 10 minutes long and include practical exercises so that you can pick up the language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. No English translations either, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in the language you are focused on, helping you get the long-term retention you are looking for. And who wouldn't want that? Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the Kara Golden Show listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. In today's world, which I will admit can at times seem filled with too much of the wrong information, it's essential to find a good source that truly gets to the heart of what I want to know. I am super excited about our next sponsor as I've been a big fan of their content for some time now. That sponsor is the Washington Post. Their depth on topics from business to tech isn't just impressive, it's essential reading for me. Whether I'm catching up on the latest tech trends or understanding how the day's news truly impacts my family. 
The Washington Post is my trusted source. Let's talk specifics. Their business and tech coverage, absolutely top-notch. Just imagine having the most insightful articles at your fingertips, including the unparalleled AI reporting from Drew Harwell or the pulse on tech and online culture from Taylor Lorenz. And the best part? You can listen to articles just like you listen to this podcast, making it perfect for your busy lifestyle. I was just reading an article from one of my favorite Washington Post writers, Frances Stead Sellers. She covers entrepreneurs like myself, but also covers other interesting topics, including health, as well as some very interesting books. I also love getting their For You newsletter, which is their roundup of stories tailored just for my interests, right in my inbox every evening. The Washington Post app is super well done, I think. It makes it incredibly easy to stay up to date and follow my favorite journalists on the go. And if you ever thought that the Washington Post is just about politics, think again. They cover everything under the sun, from climate and culture to crosswords and cooking, providing a world of surprising stories and vital insights. Okay, enough of the love fest that I have for the Washington Post. Here's the deal. Being a listener of The Kara Golden Show has its benefits, and this one is too good to miss. Now is the time to sign up for The Washington Post. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. That's 80% off their typical offer. So this is truly a steal. Once again, that's WashingtonPost.com backslash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. I went into this prison and there were all these women and then there were all these children. And I, I learned that these were children who had been born to women who were incarcerated. And since there isn't a robust social services system in Pakistan, these children often had nowhere to go and were just sort of allowed to grow up in prison with their mothers. And, you know, it was the first time I experienced what it must feel like to be essentially discarded before you're even born, to really be born without any real uh, chance of pursuing your dreams. So, you know, these experiences gave me a lot of insight into what it means to be human and to be born into circumstances that vary widely and to, and how those circumstances play into the opportunities we have and who we are able to become and also into you know the privilege that i had as as a woman who did get to go out into the world and build a, a big career and have these networks and connections that can lead to real change those memories those experiences are, are things that always stay with me and really guide me in everything that i do you know it's interesting listening to you speak about this because i always think that you know, someone's journey is, you know, maybe it sounds cliche, but it's, but it's yours, right? And it's impactful. But that's the thing when I've heard you speak, it's being able, I love that you've told those stories, because I think that it's just so important for the rest of the world to know these things, right? And, you know, and you've obviously got statistics on, you know, sort of where women are in these different countries. And, you know, and it's not great, right? As we talk about the US, I mean, it's clearly we've got our challenges, but I think it's also, you know, you not only are talking about your different journey along the way, that I think it's also, you know, helps people to 
also speak about theirs too and just be more open more than anything else. Can you tell us about how you came to start the Malala Fund? Yeah, so that's also a story that began long before it, it really began, you know, going back to my my roots in Pakistan and the work that I had done there. I was fortunate to get a scholarship to Stanford when I was 18 years old, moved to the United States, got bitten by the startup bug, really started to think about, you know, how do you build startups and businesses that actually make the world better and solve real challenges? When um, I graduated from Stanford, took my first job out of college at McKinsey and asked them to move me out to the Middle East and sort of had this big career plan where I would, you know, do the McKinsey thing and do a fancy business school and then build my own thing. And, and that sort of turned upside down about a year into my time at McKinsey when Malala was shot. And for context, I had reached out to Malala when I was 19 at Stanford. She was 11. And at the time, she had been speaking up for girls' education in her community. She comes from a part of Pakistan that's dealt with a lot of challenges. It's dealt with terrorist attacks. It's quite different from the city that I grew up in, which is a little bit more cosmopolitan. And I had noticed you know, her voice, her story, and, and her father's work. And I had reached out to them and brought her and her father and 26 other advocates like her to essentially a secret summer camp I created the sophomore year of my time at Stanford for girls who wanted to share their stories in a way that could bring real change. And, you know, my, my goal was, was simple. It was, let's give these girls the tools, resources, networks, mentors that I have, you know, at the time I was in a class of 20 students with Condoleezza Rice, you know, I, I had gone from being this girl born in Pakistan uh, with, you know, limited opportunities to now having this global education and this global network. And I thought, well, how do I give some of those opportunities to girls in my part of the world who haven't yet gotten scholarships to study in the United States? And so I created this summer camp, and that's where I first became quite close to Malala and her family. And so when she was shot, this was about four years later. And I was very devastated by what had happened, immediately went to be with her and her family. And as she recovered, miraculously, I felt there was an opportunity to help share her story in her own words and and to make this really horrible thing that had happened count for something good and to use this as a moment to wake people up to the challenges in girls' education. So I ended up quitting my job at McKinsey, moving to New York with a suitcase and starting the Malala Fund with Malala and her father when I was 22 years old. And it was this really incredible journey. You know, I got to lay the foundations of an organization that's now one of the most significant champions of girls' education and has really far-reaching impact. It made me a storyteller. It made me a builder, an entrepreneur. And when I was 24, I was at the Nobel Peace Prize with Malala. So it really sort of, Amazing. you know, showed me what's possible. And from that, I was able to build and do, do the next things that I did and really take what I learned about the nonprofit world, but then try to apply that to investing and to, to, to building my own business. Did you ever think when you were starting this, when you, you know, reached out to Malala and said, let's go tell this, did you ever think it would be that you would be sitting there, you know, alongside her for the Nobel Peace Prize? Did you ever like really, when I talk to entrepreneurs and I hear, 
them talk about the business as, okay, I'm going to build this. And in two years from now, we're going to flip it or we're going to make billion. They're missing kind of the purpose and sort of the reason and sort of starting at the roots and the build and the whole thing. And it doesn't matter if you're a nonprofit or if you're a, you know, an entrepreneurial company like our place. But my guess is, is that you didn't think that it was going to be this big. You really wanted it to be, you know, you wanted to tell the story. It started with a purpose. When I started it, I had no idea that anybody would care. And people really, at the beginning, you know, they saw this as a tragedy. They didn't see this as, as a movement. Mm-hmm. And that was a very unlikely thing. However, as we started to build, the magnitude did dawn on me. And I remember my husband actually tells this story that on our first date, he said, you know, you know, you're from Stanford and McKinsey, and now you've like switched back to the nonprofit world. And, you know, like, what's the point? What, what are you trying to do with this? Where do you want to, where do you want to end up with this? Right. And he says that I turned to him and I, I thought about it. And I, I said, you know, if I do my job really well, in 20 years, Malala and the Malala Fund will win the Nobel Peace Prize. And then it happened later that year. So, you know, on the one hand, yes, I didn't, starting out, like, you know, I was just trying to get the story out there. And then as we built and built, the magnitude did become clear that what we were doing was really resonating, but it didn't change anything. Like you just you just sort of keep doing the same thing, one foot in front of the other and trying to get it right and, and do the right thing. So you and I have talked a bit about our place and and your newest startup that is eight months old and going gangbusters. That's very, very excited for you guys. So tell me and tell our audience, I mean, togetherness is really the central voice for our place, but just talk a little bit more about this. Yeah. So, you know, I met my husband a couple of years ago and as we started to build our home in Los Angeles, we were, you know, we're both immigrants. Uh, He grew up here, but he's Iranian American. I grew up abroad. And we both really built our communities by cooking food for people, having them over, sharing stories, sharing our traditions, sharing our cuisines, and uh, and arguing over whether Pakistani or Persian food is better. (laughs) And there's something really incredible about home cooking. You know, if if you were to come into my home today, Karen, and I hope you'll be able to sometime soon. Yes, 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 um, yes. You know, you'll see me wearing my my loungewear and, you know, it's fairly Western and I'm no longer dressed in shalwar kameez. And, you know, I'm probably now a little bit more fluent in English than I am in my, my native tongue, Urdu. But you come into my kitchen and you will not just know who I am, you'll know who my grandmother was. And home cooking is this place where culture and tradition and identity and memory and story and nostalgia just sort of settle and live and and stay regardless of what's happening. The way that we eat, the ways in which we cook are so ingrained. They're so intertwined with our identity, with with our memories, with love, with family, with connection. And so we were trying to solve for that. We were trying to solve for, for deeper connection. And it dawned on us that home cooking was probably the deepest source of connection with our bodies, with our health, with our food systems, with our farmers, with our families, with our communities, with our traditions, with our cultures, you know, it came down to home cooking. And, you know, if you could get people across cultures to sit at a table and and eat and cook food together, those differences immediately dissolve away. 
So we started our places as a company that, that does that. It's a company that's about connection, but the way that we help you connect is by making products that make it really easy and joyful to cook at home. So, you know, our signature always pan, for example, is designed to replace a 16 piece cookware set. It's deep enough to make soup. It's shallow enough to flip a pancake. It's your new saucepan, saucier, skillet, nonstick pan, steamer. The list sort of goes on and on and it's got a really great nonstick coating. So it's super easy to cook and super easy to clean and it's really beautiful so you never want to put it away so you're more likely to reach for it and it's got a really great non-toxic coating so if you're you know into wellness and health you know you can really trust the materials that uh, you're cooking on and and that's sort of our whole design philosophy is creating products that make it easier to cook at home so that we can connect more but I also feel like you're doing more than that. I mean, you're you're also creating experiences and you're sort of, I remember years ago meeting the um, Gary Friedman from Restoration Hardware and he was at Pottery Barn. I mean, this was like way, way back when and Pottery Barn was just starting out. And I remember hearing the story of how, you know, Pottery Barn had started because it wasn't just about buying the items. It was actually creating the table and creating the experiences. I feel like you've even taken that one more step to say, okay, bring in your cultures. Let's all see what, what they are and let's create memories, right? So in many ways, you know, there's companies like you know, travel companies, for example, that are doing that. But I feel like what you're doing is you're bringing people in, into home. And I should mention, we're, we're recording this during the end of May shelter in place. And I feel like, you know, obviously, you guys are cooking in, in your home. But I think it's, it's also, you know, more and more people are getting back to that. And they'll be really excited to be able to, you know, cook more and more and, and share some of these things. So really, really exciting. Absolutely. You know, there's a couple of things there that I think are um, important to touch on. One is sort of gathering. And yes, we're all about gathering. And of course, we've had to rethink what that means uh, during the coronavirus epidemic. And in April, you know, we had Easter, we had Ramadan, we had Passover, three of the most significant home traditions that we were all celebrating, you know, cumulatively, you know, most of the world's population was celebrating while sheltering in place. And so, you know, we really had to understand how we could do that in this new, in this new time. And we reached out to our community and, and we spoke to people who were saying, you know what, usually I would have had 26 people at my house for Passover Seder, but instead I'm having a Zoom Seder with 60 members of my family I've never had Passover with. Or, you know, usually for Easter, my mom would come over and I'm really sad that she can't, but I called her and I wrote down her recipes and I practiced making them. And I'm so glad I did that because I, I should never have taken for granted that she would always be around. And now I've preserved these recipes that are so core to my happiest memories. So what we found was people were finding ways to connect at this time by cooking um, you know, they're calling mom, getting recipes, they're practicing recipes that grandma used to make, you know, they're hosting these gatherings over Zoom with loved ones that perhaps they never would have really bothered to, to host something with. And, you know, that's what we've always been about. And in our product philosophy and our storytelling philosophy, you know, we make products that make it easier to cook at home, but we also make products that celebrate traditions. And so our, our second line of products, which we call our tradition wear, 
are these really beautiful cultural heirlooms that we create in partnership with a community. So we, we choose a home cooking tradition. We do this three or four times a year. Maybe it's Noche Buena or Lunar New Year or Shabbat or Ramadan. And we partner with a community that celebrates that tradition to create products that are core to that tradition, to share stories about that tradition, to just put a lens on, on how Americans are celebrating the traditions that make up America. Because for so long, I think we've told certain stories in the culinary space, in the kitchenware space. You know, we've um, always looked up to Italian food and French food and those are two incredible cuisines and cultures, but there are so many others and so many more. Yeah. Certainly I've never seen a mainstream culinary brand talking about Pakistani food or Persian food. And for us, it's really about, there's so much to celebrate. So let's celebrate it all. And, and that's the way America eats, right? It's, it's sushi on Mondays and tacos on Tuesdays and biryani on Wednesdays. And that's what makes America so unique is, is this very multi-ethnic way which we eat and celebrate. And so let's, let's tell those stories and let's, you know, at this time when we're so fearful of one another, maybe that's a way to come back together. I love it. That's great. What are the key things that you see are really different in building this company versus building a nonprofit? Scale for one, you know, we built a very large nonprofit very quickly, but you know, the markets are just far larger, right? Trillions are traded every day. Nonprofits are a fraction of that. You gain scale very slowly as a nonprofit and there's usually a limit to, to, there's usually a ceiling to that scale. You know, we have grown very, very fast and I, I, I don't think I could have built a nonprofit that grew this quickly. And where I'm projecting the growth to go is far more ambitious than what I could have aimed for if I was running a nonprofit. Secondly, I think most importantly is, you know, as a nonprofit CEO, you spend a lot of your time raising money. And there is this very strong belief in the nonprofit world that you should be judged on how little of that money you spend on people, on marketing, on internal operations. Um, So, you know, hire people for very little money, you know, don't invest in marketing, don't invest in, in, in systems. And so you're essentially strangling nonprofits, whereas in you know, running a business, as long as my marketing metrics, as long as they are strong, I can keep spending as much as I want. I can dial up, um, I can dial down my investors, my customers, right? They are my direct line of, of funding for the business. And that's directly related to what I'm building. Whereas in the nonprofit world, often you, know, you may have a couple of wealthy donors and they may want you to do X, Y, Z and have a lot more power than say, in the business world where you have far more distributed sources of funding. So, you know, I think there's a role for nonprofits. I think there's a role for business. And I think both of those need to work together. I think nonprofits need to be given permission to spend on hiring talent. They need donors who don't restrict their funding and say, you know, here, I'm giving you money, but don't spend it on operations. That's quite common. They need to be measured by the problems they're solving not by how little they're spending on solving those problems. They need to be allowed to fail. You know, how often do nonprofits say, hey, you know, that school we built, not working anymore. You never hear that, right? Because nonprofits are are always forced just to tell a story of, you know, you donated, something good happened. If you donate more, more good things will happen. They're not allowed to, to really say, well, we tried to solve this really difficult problem. It didn't entirely work. Here's what we learned. 
So I think we need to allow nonprofits to work slightly differently. And then on the business side, I think we need to evolve this sort of 1970s concept of the only social responsibility of business is to maximize profits, which, you know, Milton Friedman famously stated and say, actually, you know, businesses need to be inherently mission driven. They need to think about their supply chain, their hiring practices, their culture, their impact on the world. And they should, you know, inherently be making the world better. And if we can sort of evolve both of those, I think we end up in a much better place. I totally, totally agree. So going into this, obviously, you were a fairly new startup. What advice would you give to other startups? I mean, you were building online first, right? And unlike so many other startups that are are in my space, in the beverage space, I feel like you know, they're trying to get to online now. We were already, as I mentioned to you, over 50% of our business now is direct to consumer. We've been on for over five years uh, in both channels. But what do you think is kind of the key thing that, you know, entrepreneurs should think about, like moving forward in their business? Is it, you know, obviously, I think being able to make sure that the customer can get to you, whether you know, stores are open or not, or, you know, being able to be available is, is such a key thing. But, and you mentioned a little bit about this around the mission driven as well, but what are kind of the key things that you think entrepreneurs should really be thinking about as we move forward? Yeah, I guess I'll, I'll speak about the, the e-commerce question first, and then I can go to, to broader advice. I think, you know, e-commerce, we actually launched at an interesting time where everybody was like, e-commerce is done. You know, you had your wave of e-commerce startups, like it didn't work, you know, it's done. And it was very unfashionable to be starting an e-commerce startup. All the e-commerce funds were done, CPAs are too high, not working, you know, and we did it anyway. And then, you know, when the coronavirus epidemic hit, of course, everything went back online. Even before that, you know, our marketing metrics, our growth was really, really strong, but sort of, you know, People who believed e-commerce was over were really sort of forced to reevaluate that with the coronavirus epidemic, but also, you know, people who had never shopped online, you know, people who are older and perhaps less comfortable putting a credit card into a website started to go and shop online for the first time and realize, well, this isn't so scary. And actually, this is kind of nice. And so there's been, again, you know, you had this wave of e-commerce startups a couple of years ago. They benefited from low advertising costs. Um, At that time, it was just revolutionary that they were cutting out the middleman. Like, oh, you can buy a mattress direct online. Like that was, and, and the branding was cool and it was delivered to your home. And that was kind of enough, right? And then when we launched, you know, we felt it now needed to be a lot more than that. Like cutting out the middleman is not enough of a value proposition. You have to have real product innovation and a brand and a mission that people deeply resonate with. And so we really invested in great products, great design, great brand, real mission and impact, good storytelling. The brand sort of has to be deeply compelling on its own and the mission has to be powerful and and authentic. And so I think, you know, the moment that we're in is this sort of second wave of e-commerce. I think this will be the tipping point where e-commerce really starts to gain a lot more power and strength and behaviors start to shift and shift forever. I think there will always be a role for retail. 
And I'm very hopeful that we'll be able to reopen retail stores as soon as it's safe and go back and support our local businesses. But I do think that this is going to be a moment that we look back to and say, this was a time when, you know, e-commerce penetration went from 15% to 50%. And of course, that also does make it more accessible for people in various parts of the country and the world to have access to the same products and goods and services. So that's sort of overall thoughts on e-commerce and the moment that we're in now. In terms of overall advice for founders, I would say, you know, I think that being an entrepreneur is, is very much in style and everybody wants to be an entrepreneur. And I, I think that's great. But I think what it really is about is about being entrepreneurial. You know, everyone doesn't need to quit their job and start a business, but I think everybody needs to be able to be entrepreneurial, whether that's um, on the side or in their day job or in just how they live their lives and, and think about their skill set and their career path. The time is gone when you could, you know, enter a company, work in it for 20 years and expect that you would be safe. You, we don't know what, jobs are going to look like in 10, 15, 20 years, what industries will survive, what automation will do to work, what, you know, things like what we're experiencing right now will do at the job market. So this ability to reinvent yourself, to be resilient, to be not just one very specific thing, but to be able to apply your skill set across different situations, you know, the core things that make an entrepreneur, those traits, I think, are more important than ever. And cultivating that resilience, cultivating that adaptability, cultivating that sense of, I got this, you know, I can do that too, um, is really, really important. Absolutely. And I'll just add too that I think also spending time figuring out what's working right? Like I'm, I'm sure you think about that constantly, like what's working and then focus on those and put some more gas on that, right? You know, I was talking to an entrepreneur the other day who has a tequila company and he's, you know, just building his brand and doesn't have big budgets. And he said he had figured out that, you know, all of his budgeting was going into product sampling and getting people to you know, learn about his product that way. But of course we're not doing product sampling right now. So I said to him, you know, okay, well, that's off the books, like what else can be done? And he said, I'm not, I'm not sure what can be done right now. And I said, that's your homework. Go figure out how else you're going to get the word out while people think like your customer. And how are you going to do it? Is it, you know, working with some small businesses that are doing, you know, home delivery? Are you going to, you know, partner up with some sites to get, you know, drink cocktails out there, I, like whatever it is, like, how do you just don't stop, but figure out how to, how do you keep growing? And I think like, that's so key. And you mentioned this too. I mean, you're profitable or close to profitability. And, and I think like, that's such a key thing that I think many, many startups, unfortunately have learned that, you know, and, and large companies as well, that Today, we're living in the, a time when they have to be real businesses, right? And, and I think you guys are building this in the right way. It's awesome. I ask two last questions. Number one, what's your favorite flavor of Hint? <laughs> I have so many. I love blackberry, which I'm drinking right now. I love Yay. cherry. And I also really loved the mint flavor. I don't know if you guys still have that, but... We, we do. It, we sort of bring it back. It's seasonal. Yeah. And so 
And so we, I do too, though. I, I really, really, like really good. It. And so, and then what makes you unstoppable? You've shared quite a bit, but I think what are sort of those key traits that make you unstoppable? I think I am, I'm an optimist. I think I see situations as opportunities. It feels to me like, you know, when you, when you work at something, the, the universe sort of conspires to help. Um, it definitely feels that way in my life. And even sort of the difficult things, when I look back, it, you know, it feels like they sort of, you had to go through them to get to where you are today and become the person that you, you are today. And, and so I think I look at things from a lens of optimism. I think I also always believe that I can figure stuff out. Like this isn't rocket science. If I ask enough smart people, we can figure this out. And I think that sense of not being intimidated by a problem, but leaning in and speaking to smart people it. and asking questions and, and asking, you know, questions that might be stupid or basic to begin and then getting more and more complex as, as your understanding evolves and not being ashamed of that process. That's always served me really well. I love it. I absolutely love it. So where do people find you? She's a uh, they can find me on Instagram at Shiza, S-H-I-Z-A, or at Our Place, um, also on Twitter, uh, same handles, and Facebook, Shiza.Shahib. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. And everybody go check out Our Place. I'm going there this afternoon to buy that pan that I desperately need. So I'm, I'm excited to go check it out. And listen, stay safe. And thank you so much. This was great. Thank you, Kara. Thank you for having me. This was a ton of fun. Absolutely. Okay. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. If you like what you heard, please help spread the word and leave us a review. You can also follow along with me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Kara Golden. Do you have a question for me or want to nominate an innovator to Spotlight? please talk to me at Kara Golden on Twitter. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, be unstoppable. 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 unstoppable.